Welcome to the Naked Neuroscience Podcast with me, Hannah Critchlow, brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. This month, I tucked the skies on my way to New Zealand. 23 hours in the air, crossing 12 time zones, stopping over in China and covering 18,000 kilometres on a mission to discover what a lifetime of brain research has taught one distinguished professor. It's almost impossible for the human brain to solve the human brain. We really need a super brain to do that. And that's the greatest challenge in life. Meet brain scientists studying sheep. Sheep in a flock can be very silly. You get a sheep by itself. They're very intelligent. They learn very quickly. I always liken them to teenagers. Teenagers in a group don't always behave perfectly. But you get a teenager by themselves and they're usually really quite civilised. It's the same with sheep. And I've heard that you've even managed to get some of your sheep playing games of football. The sheep don't play football with each other, but I did teach sheep how to kick a ball into a goal. A truly collaborative scientific and sheep effort, experiments spanning continents, to take a slightly comic twist. I'd love to make sheep jokes, but it's just too easy. A Welshman, an Australian and a New Zealander were doing strange things with sheep. Some of the approaches to unravel the mysteries of the mind... These are all scientists who are working on Huntington's disease, or HD. It affects around one in every 30,000 people. It's a hereditary condition, so it can be passed from mother or father down generations. To find out more about this disease, I firstly met Richard Price, whose wife Heather started to exhibit symptoms eight years ago. She started off with uh, not being able to handle stress, even the smallest of issues could um, could make her quite upset. Also, in terms of depression, she suffered from that a little as well. Uh, my wife now, Heather, is um, in uh, care, in residential care. She has what has turned out to be a very aggressive form of Huntington's. It has affected not only um, her cognitive side and her mobility, but also her um, her mental state. Um, and um, so, from from that perspective, it has you know changed quite a lot. She went into residential care about two years ago, but it, just in the last six months, um, she's been you know declining in terms of her mental state, and. Um, yeah, it's it's really just uh, you know trying to to uh, get treatments. So um, we're trialling you know treatments to try and make her uh, just um, more comfortable and and less upset and um, and unsettled, which she currently is. So yeah, where she currently resides, there um, is between four and six people with Huntington's. And they all are so different. You've got one person that you just wouldn't wouldn't realise. In fact, a GP probably wouldn't realise that they have um, HD. You've got other people that have the movement issues, and you've got you know people with the emotional and the cognitive issues. Um, unfortunately, uh, Heather has has had all three. Yeah, it's it's been you know real tough. And of course, Heather, having watched her mother go through 
um, what she's going through, you know, it's uh, uh, it's been really quite tough on, on her. So, yeah. She's 43 now. Um, she was tested when she was 18. And at that stage, they had only just discovered, you know, how to actually discover the gene um, and test for it. She was, you know, Heather's a very, um, you know, positive and proactive person, so she wanted to know whether she was going to have the um, the symptoms um, uh, later on in life. So um, it was quite tough, but she, um, you know, she, she got through it. In fact, it helped her knowing rather than not knowing. And do you think, did you ever mention that as a result of having this test and knowing that she was going to develop Huntington's down the line, do you think she led her life a little bit differently because of that? Definitely, definitely. In fact, that was, you know, her purpose. Um, everything from deciding to get a diploma rather than a degree, so rather than going to university, and uh, really just, uh, you know, getting into into the workforce and really just building up a nest egg. When the, the symptoms really started to, to appear, you know, she was able to manage that, um, understand it, and then make some decisions around it. So she always had planned on travelling and for a Canadian from the East Coast, you know, that's um, it's not as common as, as we have in New Zealand. And um, yeah, she sold a house um, and, and went travelling. And I met up with her in, in London, so yeah. Do you have children with Heather? No, no. Uh, that was another sort of decision that she had uh, made quite early on because of, it seems her family may be, you know, more prone to passing it down the line. Her brother has, uh, has it as well. Um, he does uh, have a, a son. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, Heather had a lot of time to sort of process and, and accept that. And, you know, it's, we, were, um, we were both of the same mind. So uh, we had dogs instead of uh, children. So, yeah. Thanks to Richard Price, whose wife Heather has Huntington's disease. Now, Richard mentioned a single gene responsible for Huntington's with a genetic test available to diagnose people. No other disorder of the brain has made this breakthrough and I wanted to find out more about how this gene was discovered. Hi, um, my name's Professor Russell Snell and I'm in the School of Biological Sciences in the University of Auckland and I was one of the members of the group that found the gene actually now 20 years ago. And I have to say that, so I'm going to wish her on a little bit, but I have to say that the Huntington's disease research community is a little bit special because it's always had very direct input in from people or families who are affected by the disease. And so there's always quite a reality about our research meetings because generally speaking, there's somebody um, from, a, from a Huntington's family or a Huntington's patient who comes along to the meeting and presents in some way or other that is rather galvanising, and that's great. So, so it's true partnership between the research community and the patients, which has it should be. And many years ago, when we 
when we found the gene, that was a collaborative group and a great collaboration where we all shared the data prior to publication and see how rapidly through collaboration research can advance. We'll find out more about the gene and how sheep are involved in studying it shortly. But first, Associate Professor of Psychology Lynette Tippett from Auckland University expands on how the Huntington's disease research community came about. It began really with Milton Wexler, and Milton Wexler was was a psychiatrist in Hollywood, and his wife died of Huntington's disease, as did her three brothers. And he had two daughters, who are still alive today, Nancy and Alice Wexler, and he decided he needed to find this gene and find a cure for Huntington's disease so that he could you know, cure his family or save his family. And so... What he did was he started pulling together scientists from all around and just sort of putting them in a room and making them brainstorm, finding this gene and finding out how to cure Huntington's disease. So it was unusual because instead of people, you know, fighting for grants and all the competitiveness that goes on in a lot of science, he managed to get these scientists in a room, get them all on the same page and all just being open and brainstorming ideas. And and that's really how the Huntington's research field began. So the gene was finally found in 1993, so that's 20 years ago. That sort of legacy of a lot of collaborative and interactive and international groups working together, that legacy of that collaboration, I think, continues today and I think it's down to that very unique start to uh, focus Huntington's research that came from the efforts of Milton Wexler. Back to Russell to find out how this collaboration resulted in the successful identification of the gene involved in Huntington's disease. Again it was a partnership between um, the researchers and the families. It was looking at families and looking at people if you can imagine like an upside down tree where the gene is inherited down the family. And we can follow the inheritance of of that particular piece of DNA in the family and look at individuals that got it and individuals that didn't. And, And in doing that with molecular tools or DNA tools, we can narrow the region down until we narrowed it down to a single point. In Jim and Marcy's lab, they found a absolutely convicting mutation or variation in the gene, which is like a lengthening of a piece of DNA, a particular tract in the gene. So that lengthening of that one section of DNA was being passed through generations, and those individuals that were affected in generations then developed these symptoms of Huntington's, and that's how you identified the genetic basis of Huntington's. Yes, absolutely. And there was there was one other piece of information that came along with it that really nailed it. It was that on average, if you inherited a longer repeat or uh, this little track, you can imagine it as like a bicycle chain that gets longer, where on average, when the repeat is longer, because it varies between all of us, including people who don't get Huntington's disease, if the repeat is longer, then the age of onset is lower. So you can draw a curve. So if you are unfortunate enough to inherit a very long repeat, say over 60 or 70 units, then the age of onset tends to be younger than 20. 
again, there's a lot of variability, was what convicted this gene as the gene that causes Huntington's disease. And going back to the analogy of the bicycle chain, so the longer the bicycle chain, the less far you're, you're probably able to ride before you actually, the chain slips off, you can't ride anymore. Yeah, that's probably where the, the analogy breaks down a little bit because Huntington's disease is a disease caused by, it's called a dominant disease. It means that you only need to inherit one copy of the expanded repeat. And, and there's still debate about whether it contributes a gain of bad function or a loss of good function. The debate, I think, is falling on the side, and this is what I, I believe as well, that, that there is a gain of dysfunction. So almost like one is inheriting something that takes on a brand new but bad function for the cells in the brain. And what does this gene usually do in the brain when it's the right length? We don't really know. Even after 20 years, we know that it's required, absolutely required for embryo development. So if you remove the gene in mice, then they don't develop past day seven. We know that it's very likely to be involved in transport in axons. That, that's the nerves in the brain. So transport of molecules up and along these very long sticky outy branches in the brain. We also suspect it's involved in metabolism of the brain, so the feeding of the brain with glucose. Huntington's patients lose weight dramatically towards the end, and on average over life they are slightly lighter, and there appears to be some sort of metabolic deficit. I kind of favour this, I quite like this theory, that in some way, for some reason, yet we don't know, the, the feeding of these neurons in the brain, the supply of glucose to neurons in the brain, is not operating that well. So this is just another theory, but maybe these cells are being starved of food. But beyond that, we really don't know, and I think, I think the reason for that is because it's involved in so many things. Which is why you get this myriad of symptoms with the patients that have got this expansion of this gene. I think the range in symptoms and the range of, of how the disease progresses or presents and the age that it presents is to do with, at least in part, how we are able to cope with the gain of dysfunction. And I think some people are better able to cope with it because of what they inherited in their environment and, and other people less, less able to cope with it. The, a, a word that's quite often used is plasticity, which is kind of a cool word in that it, that it kind of means that how plastic, how malleable your brain is to cope with this, in effect, terrible insult that happens. And, and we know that some people, because there's quite a bit of cell loss in Huntington's disease in most cases, that people can cope with different amounts of cell loss before the symptoms come on. It's quite remarkable. The brain is quite a remarkable thing. And you're studying this remarkable brain, this remarkable gene and how it's involved in leading to Huntington's with these expansions of the, the CAG repeats. Um, you're studying it in, in quite unusual and remarkable animals, I believe. Yeah, why sheep? I, I grew up on a farm in South Otago. Sheep are docile, but they're also intelligent. 
they've got big brains. I could see our models wandering around a paddock, eating grass and living an ordinary sheep life until we wanted to look at their brains. And so it seemed to me, at least for these late onset neurodegenerative diseases or Huntington's disease, is that we could make an, an ethical model where they live a normal sheep life until they don't, if that makes sense. So that's just the line, the ethical line that I draw. And we knew something about the sheep brain structure and actually how to manage them in a farming situation. We're good at looking after sheep and we're good at understanding sheep. So it's a combination of things. And the sheep genome or the sheep genes are a little bit closer to human. And also we knew that we could do behavioural things with sheep because sheep have behaviours, or, or we imagined we could, but Jenny's really taken that to a major different level. Well, she's done an incredible job there. I wanted to find out more about these sheep and how they behave, so I met up with Jenny, a professor back in my hometown of Cambridge, UK. Sheep, sheep in a flock have a, a poor reputation. They follow each other, they do daft things. If one sheep gets stuck in a fence, another sheep will get stuck in a fence. And they, they also look a bit silly. But I always liken them to teenagers. Teenagers in a group are, don't always behave perfectly. But you get a teenager by themselves and they're usually really quite civilised. It's the same with sheep. Sheep in a flock can be very silly. You get a sheep by itself working under controlled conditions, they perform very well. They're very intelligent, they're um, a little bit moody, but they understand things, they learn very quickly. So the kind of experimental tests that you do? We're trying to design experiments that will test cognitive function in decision-making in particular. Sheep can do tasks where the rule changes and they can figure out that there is a new rule and what the new rule is and perform accordingly. So for example, if I go down a corridor, I know at the left-hand side there's going to be a little treat for me, a little chocolate bar, and so I keep going down the left-hand side, and then suddenly you might switch that treat to the right-hand side corridor, and then I'll learn to go down to the right instead of the left. That's the kind of thing that you do with your sheep. Yeah, that's almost exactly what we do, except we use um, coloured buckets. So we'll say, if you go to the yellow bucket, there will be a reward. If you go to the um, blue bucket, there won't be a reward. So the sheep learn very quickly to go to the yellow. And then you can switch colours, so you can suddenly present them with a new pair of colours and they have to make a new decision. First they have to go, oh, that's just the coloured bucket test. I'll choose one of them and then, then I can learn what the new rule of these new colours is. What we now do, though, is we actually use computer screens, so we don't need to have buckets and... Um, they don't have to walk anywhere. They actually just use computer screens and choose symbols off a computer screen. And this type of decision-making, it's important, isn't it, in everyday human life? And as we were hearing, it can be affected in Huntingdon's disease. It's absolutely critical. And in fact, that's why I started with two-choice discrimination tasks, because Huntingdon's patients can learn to do these sort of tasks, but they have trouble with the sort of reversals that you were talking about. So they learn something... But then when the rule changes, they perseverate on the old rule. So they'll stick to the same thing they knew and they have great difficulty with flexible thinking. That's why I chose to develop that task for the sheep. And I've heard that you've even managed to get some of your sheep playing games of football with proper goalposts. And, and are the sheep 
counting their goals as well? Are they able to know who's the, who's the victorious team? The sheep don't play football with each other, but I did teach sheep how to kick a ball into a goal because, again, I'm looking for tasks of skill and motor coordination and I also wanted something that sheep didn't normally do. Now, sheep don't normally kick a football. If they see a football in a field, they would be afraid of it because it was weird. But I taught the sheep how to kick a football because I know that it's a good test of balance, coordination and skill that might be useful for testing balance, coordination and skill in the HD sheep. Thanks to Jenny Morton from Cambridge University. And Russell and colleagues developed a Huntington's disease flock of transgenic sheep that he's called the Kiwis. They've been genetically tweaked to contain a short number of CAG genetic repeats. And looking at their brains, they show the same pathology as very early stage Huntington's. And Russell is using the Kiwi model to help find out how to safely stop full Huntington's progressing by preventing the bad Huntington's protein from accumulating in the brain. As he explains... So the central dogma of molecular biology is that a gene in the genome is read and that it is read and copied into this stuff called RNA or messenger RNA and then that gets read and copied as, into protein. And if we could remove the messenger RNA, then the message won't go forward and be translated into the protein. And actually that is the language we use. If you make small molecules of RNA that could stick the copy carrying the mutation, then the cell has this wonderful mechanism of recognising when two RNA molecules are stuck together and comes along with an enzyme called DISA and nibbles it and chops it up and then removes it. So if we can get those small RNA molecules into the brain, and they're going to do that by injecting a virus, and if that virus gets taken up by the vulnerable cells, expressing or producing these small molecules, which will stick very specifically to the aberrant or mutant RNA, and just chop it up. Russell Snell describing a new therapy, hoping to prevent Huntington's. Exciting studies and the results are expected in the middle of 2014. We know quite a lot of genes that are involved in childhood deafness, but we know very, very little about the genetic basis of hearing impairment as we get older. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we're finding out how researchers are making progress in understanding the gene faults behind hearing loss. Plus, flu and narcolepsy, stress and death, mice on drugs, and a wobbly gene of the month. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com genetics. Mice are also being used to study Huntington's, this time though by accelerating the disease. I spoke with Dr Elisa McGregor, also at Auckland University. So our mice have also a, an increased CAG repeat length, but it's 128 repeats. So it's, it's much, much more than you would see in a human patient because we need an accelerated pathology in the animals to fit with the lifespan of a mouse. So what are you seeing in this mega long CAG repeats of this Huntington gene? So we see this really classical motor impairments that human patients see. We also see very early cognitive problems. So these mice are not able to learn how to do the motor tests that we, we usually use to assess 
coordination in these animals. They also really have a lot of problems with what we call delay-dependent memory. So can you remember this one piece of information in five minutes' time or in a day's time? They also are very poor at um, recognition memory, so recognising that there is a new object in their environment. We also see psychiatric impairments in these animals, which are much more difficult to measure, but we have ways that we can assess that type of behaviour in our animal models and our transgenic mice also show a depressive-like behaviour from about six months of age. There is a very specific way that we look at depression in mice because they obviously can't tell you how they feel about things. We um, typically use a swim test and the mice will either swim or they're immobile in this environment. It's quite a small environment and they can't generally get out. So we can correlate time spent immobile or floating with depression and that's actually used as a screen by a lot of pharmaceutical companies to look at antidepressant activity of new drugs. It has a real correlate with human behaviour, I guess. So if you imagine that the time spent immobile is like despair or helplessness, um, we see a lot less of that following our drug treatment that we're, we've been working on. So the animals are swimming much more and they're much more active. Another interesting correlation with human patients because other tests that we use to look at shifting strategies or, or cognitive um, tests where you have to change the way that you do something. Um, normally mice are very good at that strategy shifting type behaviour. It's how they find food. They alternate between different ways of doing things. Our Huntington's disease mice are very bad at that and they persevere with the same strategy over and over again even when it's not successful. The, the types of compounds that we are interested in are involved in cholinergic transmission which is involved in attention and memory and these compounds are even in normal mice are what we call cognitive enhancers so they improve performance and memory tasks and attention um, to do these tasks. We're also seeing really significant improvements in motor function in very very elderly Huntington's disease mice so we had really expected that by then we would be beyond the point where we could see any benefits but um, we're actually restoring motor function in these aged Huntington's disease mice back to a normal aged mouse's performance which is great. Thanks to Elisa McGregor. Next month we'll be continuing our quest with Huntington's disease. We'll be finding out about other approaches that are being used to help find a treatment, how a bank of frozen human brains is acting as a reference library for the disorder, and how scientists are creating human brain circuits in a dish in order to piece together the jigsaw of the disease, distangle the myriad of symptoms of Huntington's disease, and unravel the plethora of possible causes. We close this month's show with a man who set up this centre of research in Auckland to find out how research Huntington's disease is also helping us to grasp the incredible scale of complexity of the human brain. So I'm, I'm Richard Fall. I'm um, a distinguished professor at the University of Auckland. I'm the director of the Centre for Brain Research and I've spent an incredible life working on the human brain. And the one thing I would say is what I've learnt, I've learnt to be humble and I've learnt to know that it's almost impossible for the human brain to solve the human brain. We really need a super brain to do that and that's the greatest challenge in life. So Huntington's disease was generally thought to be a simple disease because it was caused by one gene. And why there has been so much attention on this 
genes scientifically and on this disease was the simple idea that if we could solve this disease by working out what this one gene defect caused, then we could solve diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's and writing your own disease, which were uh, multiple gene diseases. Well, it just so happens that we now know that this single gene disease, Huntington's disease, is a very complicated disease because it actually causes dysregulation and upset of at least a quarter of all the genes. We have 45,000 genes in each cell. And depending on what part of the brain it is, will upset different combinations of these other genes, you see. That's why you get all the different symptoms. And so genetics is a very complex science now. We thought it was a simple science when I was at school, and that this gene would do just one thing. It doesn't. The gene makes a protein. That protein interacts with other genes and causes them to change their function or change their pattern of protein production. So there is a sort of a, an effect which is, spreads like wildfire in variable ways, and, and the variation is affected by the environment. And so we know that people in different environments, even with the same gene, will result in different patterns of brain degeneration and symptoms. And Huntington's disease has taught us the fundamental principles and that the human brain is more complex than what we ever, ever imagined. We can't explain a human thought. We can't explain what a sudden burst of genius is. And we're beginning to unravel that. But it's almost as if we climb to the top of Mount Everest thinking we're going to solve this disease and then we see all the Himalayas before us which are even higher. And that's the challenge of doing brain research. There's going to be several lifetimes of work to unravel the human brain. And this disease has actually led us along that path. And that's all we have time for. See you next month to continue the journey to open our minds. Thanks to Richard Fall, Richard Price, Lynette Tippett, Russell Snell, Jenny Morton and Elisa McGregor. You can find the full transcript for this episode and others in the series at thenakedscientists.com forward slash neuroscience. And if you have any questions or comments, then do get in touch at hannah at thenakedscientists.com or you can find The Naked Scientists on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you.